Welcome. Um, thank you very much for coming out this evening to listen to some public philosophy on doping. Um, so here at the forum, we're in the business of trying to give high-quality, accessible philosophy to people for free. Um, so we have these events, and we send out the content on podcasts. Uh, if you're interested in what we do, please feel free to go to the website and support us in some way. Uh, just for the record, this is all being recorded, so it will be made into a podcast. So if you ask a question in those times that I invite you to ask questions, do remember that <laughs> You know, it may end up being heard by other people if that's not something you'd be comfortable with. Uh, and then, because it's being recorded, uh, please do wait for the microphone to come to you to ask the question, uh, just to make sure that the listeners uh, eventually can hear what you've said. Okay, so, doping. Uh, all's fair in love and war, but what about sport? <laughs> um, perhaps not. So, when we think of competition, maybe we imagine that there's something like a bedrock in uh, athletics of something like a level playing field. Uh, tonight we're going to discuss some of the philosophical issues around doping, competitiveness, uh, sports and fairness. Okay, so I'll introduce our speakers. So John William Devine to my left is a lecturer in sports ethics and integrity at Swansea University. Vanessa Heggie is a lecturer in the history of medicine and science at the University of Birmingham. And David Papineau is a professor of philosophy at King's College London and the City University of New York's Graduate Centre. Okay, so, John William, maybe you'll mind, you wouldn't mind starting us off. So, why is it that philosophers would be interested in doping? Uh, what is there here for philosophers to think about? Yeah, well, I mean, <clears throat> doping is an interesting question within the philosophy of sport, not least because it ties together a lot of the central issues, in, uh, the central philosophical issues around sport. So, questions like, what is an athlete to begin with? What's the purpose of sporting competition? And what counts as sporting excellence are all questions that arise within this problem of doping. So um, I think that's uh, essentially why doping is of such philosophical interest to philosophers of sport, because it ties together a lot of the central questions really well. Okay, so you've got some ethics, some metaphysics, lots of different aspects of philosophy that might touch on doping. Should we dope? Uh, what are the arguments? Do, do people think in general it's okay, or do philosophers argue that it should never happen? What, what's the lay of the land? Right, well, let's get clear at the outset as to what we mean by doping. So doping is a term that's used ever more widely in, in sporting discourse at the moment. So we think of, for example, blood doping, that is tra blood transfusions. Athletes may, for example, extract their own blood and reinsert their own blood at a later date. Gene doping, that is uh, sort of the techniques used for gene therapy but for enhancement purposes. We might think of financial doping as sometimes a term that's used, particularly in football, where uh, financial fair play rules are not adhered to. Or we might think of uh, mechanical doping even. So one thinks of, for example, cyclists uh, concealing motors in their bicycles as an example of mechanical doping. But what, I think what we have in mind today is uh, pharmaceutical doping, that is the use of uh, performance-enhancing drugs, drugs like anabolic steroids, erythropoietin, beta blockers, painkillers, uh, to enhance performance. So, so that's the sort of sense of what doping is. Is it right or wrong in sport, really, was, was, was your question. So let me say something, of, uh, or something about the arguments in favor of doping. So the first argument that might be worth raising is an argument from autonomy, from freedom. So people might say, unless there's a good reason to limit people's freedom, we should let people do what they like. And in the absence of a justification, 
of a convincing justification to limit people's freedom, they should be allowed to dope. And they say there's no good reason to back or to justify the current um, or even an imagined restriction on the use of performance-enhancing drugs. So that's kind of at an individual level, is it? When you're thinking of a specific person about to do a sporting activity, uh, why get in the way of brilliance if brilliance can be achieved that way? Right, so the, the thought would be, well, these current regulations that we have that prevent people from doping are an infringement on the autonomy of those who would wish to dope. Okay. Right? Um, so there's also a related argument, uh, which is that the kinds of measures that you need to make this ban effective involve tracking athletes' whereabouts, uh, analyzing their biological data, taking possession of uh, biological material, and that this is an infringement on their right to privacy. And for many people, the right to privacy is grounded in autonomy. So that's sort of a, a separate freedom-based argument. So that's the first that I'll mention in favor of doping. The second is an excellence-based argument. The thought is that, look, the Olympic motto is, what, faster, higher, stronger. And Lance Armstrong cycled faster when he was on EPO. Ben Johnson got stronger when he was using anabolic steroids. So the thought here would be that as we restrict the use of performance-enhancing drugs, we are restricting the pursuit of athletic excellence. So that's a kind of uh, a, a separate excellence-based argument. But then finally, um, perhaps the most pragmatic argument in favor of doping is that doping is a form of cheating that we just can't control. And that essentially we've tried, we've done the testing, we've chased athletes around, we've track their whereabouts, but there still appears to be um, widespread cheating by doping in sport. So to close off that avenue for um, unfairness within sport, we should lift the ban and allow everybody to dope on an equal basis. Because at the moment, the present regulation is unfair on those who will not break the rule. So lift the rule, that is lift the ban, and... um, allow everybody to compete on the same uh, playing field. Oh, yeah, like the same possible playing field, I guess, because it's going to depend on what, what you have access to, maybe. Yes, so you're, you're absolutely right. So there's an important distinction there between formal and substantive fairness. So formal fairness being that the rules are applied equally to everybody. Even if people have different opportunities to develop their talents and so on, that's a kind of a matter of substantive fairness. But purely from the, the perspective of the rules being applied... Um, equally across the board. That's, that's the sort of the, the, the notion of fairness that lies behind that, that argument from cheating. Okay, so I'm convinced that uh, my pursuit of excellence can allow me to dope. Why should I not dope? Why do philosophers think uh, it shouldn't happen? Well, I guess the first, uh, one of the main arguments that we hear in public discourse against doping is an argument from harm. The thought is that many performance-enhancing substances are harmful to the athlete who uses them. So one thinks of anabolic steroids being damaging to one's liver over time or erythropoietin, that is EPO, thickening the blood, perhaps uh, increasing the chances of uh, stroke. Um, And so the worry is that we need to save athletes from themselves, so from self-inflicted harm. And this is is no doubt a paternalistic argument, right? Um, So... 
that's, that's one sort of worry with that argument. But another kind of harm-based argument would be that it's not that we need to save the user from themselves, but we need to save the user from their... or we need to save their competitors from the user. This is particularly prevalent in... or particularly strong, I guess, as an argument in combat sports, where one would think that uh, by allowing athletes to use anabolic steroids, for example, that increases the risk of participation in, in, those, in those sports. Okay, so it's one thing to, to be harming abstract things like the history of the records of the champions or fairness. But, you know, if you're taking as many drugs as possible and getting into a ring with somebody uh, with, you know, the plan to knock them out, then maybe it seems to be a particular danger to be doing that in a way that really lends itself to, to specific harms. That's right. And, and I mean, relatedly, um, there's a worry that if we do allow... Um, uh, if we do allow drugs, we lift the ban, it encourages uh, people to engage in this sort of self-harming behavior that they may be in some sense coerced by their opponents using um, these dangerous drugs. The thought is that in order to compete with these drug users, I and myself now have to to dope. So this is a kind of a... a the, the choice then that athletes would face is, well, dope or don't be competitive. So dope or give up your aspirations to compete at the elite level. So there's a worry um, there at the sort of, that the circumstances of competition may become coercive. Or just that removing the ban may make athletes vulnerable to pressures from coaches or parents or teammates to, to dope. So both the circumstances and perhaps individual relationships would be the source of coercion. There. So the new normal is a, is a potentially dangerous normal. That's right. So that's the harm-based argument. Um, the second kind of argument against doping that one often hears is on the basis of fairness. The idea being that we should, um, we should uh, regulate doping such that to, to preserve fair competition. In that if we allow doping, we open up an avenue by which uh, wealthy athletes or wealthy families or wealthy nations or wealthy clubs can flex their economic muscles even more, right? So they may already have the best training facilities and the best coaches and the best equipment, but now we just open yet another avenue by which the fairness of sporting competition in the substantive sense of fairness, another, another way in which that can be compromised. Um, so there's both a worry about fairness between athletes at the same time, that is, between athletes who are contemporaries, who are competing against each other. But there's also a worry uh, arising from fairness between perhaps different generations of athletes. So one of the things that we prize in sport is the ability to make comparisons between perhaps Jesse Owens and uh, Usain Bolt, between Martina Navratilova and Serena Williams. And so if we were to lift the ban on doping, the, the worry is that that may be a watershed moment in sport that would involve a break between uh, the past and future sport, thereby kind of compromising the possibility of making those sorts of intergenerational comparisons. Yeah, so I, I, that's really interesting. It seems like you would be sort of fundamentally altering the kind of natural way in which we think of competition emerging over time. Um, do we have any cases of that? Is that something that's, I mean, have, have any well, sports just opted to? So you think of the case, uh, many of you will be familiar with the 
uh, the 100% full-body polyurethane swimsuits that were allowed around 2009. And you would have seen that at the Olympics, I think, in Beijing. Were these the long... The very long suits that were water-resistant and they encouraged a certain body shape in the water that was conducive to a kind of effective stroke and so on. And so, in a very short space of time, nearly all of swimming's world records were broken. And so you had this kind of before the suits and after the suits moment, right? And watershed. A watershed moment, okay. Good, good. Um, so a watershed moment. And, and so the, the real difficulty then became that FINA, the governing body for swimming, said, well, look, this is no longer plausible. And they banned the suits, but they retained the records, So now you have a situation where you have all of these records that have been achieved using a certain means, which is now no longer available to athletes. And some of those records remain on the record book. That seems very strange. Um... And I think this is why we need kind of a rational debate about doping, to avoid those sorts of anomalies now. Okay, I see. Um... So, last but not least. Sure. We had harm, we've had fairness. The last argument, um, perhaps against doping, is excellence-based arguments. The thought here, remember before we said that some people think that doping is, uh, that our regulation of doping in fact caps the pursuit of sporting excellence. For other people in this debate, they think that the pursuit of sporting excellence makes it essential that we prohibit doping. And the thought here is that the use of some performance-enhancing drugs may in fact compromise or corrupt the practice of sport. So um, one might think, for example, let's, let's take uh, a case in archery, the sport of archery, or in fact any target sport. So one might think of pistol shooting and so on. So one of the great skills that archers display in competition is the ability to slow their heart rate right down. Despite all the stress and all the anxiety of competition, they can slow their heart rate down so that their hand, their arm, becomes perfectly steady. Now, archers cultivate this skill by engaging in psychological techniques and ways of um, uh, controlling the, the um, manifestations of stress. But if we were to allow beta blockers, the athlete could be having a panic but it wouldn't manifest itself in a tremor in their hand. So then we have a sport archery where one of the excellences that the sport is designed to test is no longer uh, a determinant of the result of the sport. So in that sense, archery is uh, is less, is corrupted by the inclusion of of performance-enhancing drugs. We might think similarly of... Sports like boxing or combat sports like mixed martial arts or even distance sports, think of the Tour de France, where one of the things that's really admirable about their performance is the ability to sustain great degree of pain over a long period of time. The ability to manage their pain and to continue even though they may be in excruciating pain. So if we allow painkillers, that would mean that they could compete and get hit and cycle for miles and miles without feeling anything. We might think that the performance is less admirable in a certain respect because one of the virtues that are on display by athletes in those, in those events is no longer on display. So in that way, 
with the thought is that performance-enhancing drugs can obscure the display of sporting excellence. So to make a sort of final analogy, if one were to think of uh, a long jumper, and as they run down the, the track, and it's just as they take off, there's an enormous gust of wind that throws them down the sand pit. We would say, we would look at that performance and say, okay, well now we've got a problem because we have to disentangle the athlete's excellence from the effect of the wind. And I think this is really the thought that lies behind the excellence-based arguments around doping, that the use of performance-enhancing drugs is like the wind. It's actually obscuring the display of excellence rather than elevating it. Okay, so it's really interesting. It seems like uh, what people will mean by excellence if you can have sort of opposing arguments from excellence. So people seem to value really different things in sports. So maybe in the latter camp you have people who think what sports is about is a set of kind of natural abilities like controlling your heart, controlling your sort of state of mind. And then in the other camp it's more about just being able to achieve outrageous feats by any means necessary is what the kind of thought. And so either, you know, which position you have on the value of sports is going to determine what you think excellence in sports is? Yes. So, you know, I would be somewhat hesitant to use the word natural here because we would say that sort of all of the capacities that athletes display are trained, sure. right, and the result of a great deal of kind of, um, of effort and so on. So they don't just come spontaneously or naturally. But um, there is a sense in which um, there is a sense in which natural is playing a role here. When we try to unpack what we mean by sporting excellence, it seems like that may well involve something like the display of natural ability, natural talent. But I think David keen to get in on excellence. A bit uneasy about the emphasis on natural because of those sports that depend on technological advances. So think about cycling. Part part of being a good cycling team is having better bikes, and that's an integral part of the sport. Sailing, sailing as well. I mean, a, a lot of the advantages are are to do with getting a better boat. And well, uh, so, so th- there's nothing natural about about uh, sailing, especially a good bicycle. Sailing is an interesting case, though. So, on the one hand, you would have the America's Cup, where you have a race between teams trying to perfect the best boat and so on. But then you think of Olympic sailing oh. and uh, Olympic dinghy sailing and the athletes are given the same boat when they arrive, right? So there, there's a, a concerted effort to provide a sort of level playing field, not allowing the tech, the, the, the kind of... I didn't know, so is, 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 it, is it like the, the pentathlon, where you, where you get given horses, you get given, you get given your laser when you arrive? I mean, that's, that's, that's not right. a normal thing in, in competitive dinghy sailing. I mean, you, 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 you make sure you've got a good boat with good kit, but uh, I didn't realise the Olympics actually got around that. There's cases and cases, obviously. Yeah, and I was just going to say that I think the, the value of the historical examples of doping, non-doping, enhancement and so on is that because attitudes in the past have been very different, they're a useful way of us to actually start unpicking what do we think is natural, what's an enhancement, what's the rest of it. Um, I mean, the, the fairly to draw on this sort of mechanical doping idea, the fairly classic example is the 1904 um, Olympics, the marathon, where, I mean, it was was a farce, it's a very sort of cliched example, but it turned out the guy who got into the um, stadium first had actually been driven part of the way on the course in a car, and they were pretty clear that that was cheating, so he was disqualified, and that was not okay. But the next guy in had been um, given uh, whipped-up egg whites, uh, tots of brandy and shots of strychnine whilst running and that was fine so again is that, that, that sort of enhancement that sort of assistance that sort of on track medical assistance was absolutely acceptable 
but the car clearly wasn't. So they were able to make that distinction. But then if you look at the path of those three doping substances, it's quite different. The egg whites, nice high-protein snack, that's just fine, always been fine. Protein shakes, that's fine. Alcohol became banned and became unbanned last year by the World Anti-Doping Agency, so alcohol is now fine again. Um, Strychnine, however, remains on the list, regardless of whether or not it actually is an enhancement, because actually I think in this case it did him real harm, because he was pretty unhappy by the time he got to the stadium. I don't know if it's a comparable case, but I remember Ronnie O'Sullivan got uh, fined for cannabis use and I think his comment was like come on it's hardly performance enhancing (laughs) for snooker yeah but quite a few that's that's a big issue with Mm. with a lot of athletes I mean it's not an exceptional case by a long way but at least some of those drugs are on the list because when they were initially added they're of a much more much older tradition of doping and drug use in sports and not necessarily ones if we're going to sit down now and think what actually helps are the ones we put on the list itself they're sort of heritage drugs can you tell us a bit about the heritage of this drug-taking for sports purposes, maybe just to give us some examples to work with. Okay, so um, so I think, I think one of the interesting things uh, is that when we talk about histories of doping and drug-taking, um, there is a real tendency to look to the 50s and 60s as being when it all started. That's when the bans begin to be brought in, when the testing for drugs begins to be introduced. And there's a danger that it makes us nostalgic about the past and that, you know, there was this beautiful, clean period. Before we had to regulate Before we did it, it when you know, everyone was competing in a gentlemanly way and it was all fine. And the reality is that athletes of all levels, professional, amateur, national, international, were taking substances that they thought would help them be better sports people in a lot of contexts. Um, probably the last... For for a UK audience, I'd say the last big example, the really obvious one, would be um, late 1930s, 37, 38, thereabouts, when the the controversial manager of Wolverhampton Wanderers Football Club announced that he was going to be injecting his players with monkey gland extract. so this is a time period where hormones are very, um, they're pop science friendly and they're science friendly and there's this idea that they're, this is particularly male hormones, testicular extracts, they're going to invigorate and energise and masculinise people and they're really good for sports and things like this. He might not have actually given it to his players, it might have been flu inoculations and it was all psychosomatic, but Wolves did really well that season regardless. And a couple of other football clubs said they were investigating it, a cricket club said they thought it would be a good idea. It was really well covered in the press. Um, There was this idea there might be a gland final where both of the teams playing were (laughs) doped up on monkey hormones. Um, And actually it got to the point where there was a question asked in the House of Parliament about this. But the framing of it was not that it was cheating, the framing of it was about labour rights basically. Like, was it okay for football club managers to make their players take this drug? Like, could it harm them? Could it help? When it, it relates a bit, I think, to this idea of freedom, but in this case, it's not, it's not exactly a paternalist suppression of the individual's right to take it. It's more that if this is going to be a requirement for you to do this job of being a footballer, do we have some responsibility to make sure you're not being harmed by this requirement? Um, and basically, the, the Minister for Health said it was rubbish and this was a completely normal treatment and perfectly fine. And then someone else suggested that maybe the Cabinet should have some injections as well and that would help them be better politicians. And that's kind of where it was left. But very obviously, World War II intervenes, people's priorities are elsewhere. And by the time we get into the 50s, Injecting your sports people with hormones, particularly if you're Russian or from East Germany, that is no longer an acceptable thing. So fairly obviously something has happened and it's fairly obviously a political, social, war-related, Cold War-related thing that that has dramatically shifted what we think is and isn't acceptable between the 1930s and the 1950s. 
You said that was quite a late example. And what does the is that just specifically as a sort of chemical thing? And is what does the heritage look like before the monkey hormones? <laughs> monkey glands. Yeah. So I mean, pretty much every culture has had a tradition of understanding fairness that there are competitions of some kind that have rules or regulations whether that's a duel or a foot race or a game of chess or whatever and so on Um, and that issue of fairness is in it it generally applies when people start um, pushing the rules or doing something that isn't in the rules or doing stuff that's in the grey area and that's really when it comes up and those notions of where that fairness issue lies are the ones that you can see change quite dramatically in that particular time period around about mid-century where these substances stop becoming acceptable for athletes. Um, So I think the the Wolves case is quite late because it's the late 1930s but the more you go back the more you can find examples of athletes using these sorts of substances. Um, So I've already mentioned um, the uh, the 1904 Olympics where clearly the runner had been taking these substances and it was widely known that they'd been taking them and that wasn't problematic but actually as a consequence of that the first ever doping regulation was brought in at the 1908 London Olympic Games um, it's only for the marathon other sports were fine and they specifically say that no drug of any short sort should be taken during the race or given to you while you're taking part in the race but again it's not because it's unfair it's because the health effects were what they were worried about. So Thomas Hicks, the guy who'd been doped with the strychnine, gets into the stadium in 1904 and his, his arms and legs are stiff and apparently he's a loose... They didn't let him have water or food during the entire run of the marathon. So you know, it's understandable that he was not in a good state when he finally wins and gets his gold medal. Um, and for the London Games, the, um, the route of the marathon is obviously going past the Royal Box. And like, they do not want stumbly, collapsing marathon runners you know, in front of the royal family. They're not having any of this. So their concern was very much... They wanted healthy, nice, fit runners who had not been injected with strychnine halfway around the race. So it was not to do, again, with fitness. It was very specifically to do with this issue of, of, um, of, not wanting, of, of the health, potential health risks of taking some of these substances whilst doing that very extreme sport of the marathon. So it's a, it's a very different understanding that actually these substances are... They're normal. I mean, if you get cramp in your muscle, you get an injection of strychnine. That's what you do. In the same way that you might take an aspirin if you had a headache and you're going out to compete. That division between what we see as being an um, enhancement and what we're seeing as medical treatment is it's is something that is socially constructed and it's very different in the first half of the century than the way we understand it in the second half when we start saying that athletes have to live by different rules. I mean, I think this, that the beta blockers is an interesting point because obviously if you were a... I don't know, a a great violinist or something like that, and you were taking part in a massive music competition, it would in fact be acceptable, or certainly would be practice, for you to perhaps take beta blockers to reduce the shaking of your hands. And even though it was a competitive event or perhaps a job audition, that would still be something you'd be able to do. But an athlete's body becomes different and special round about the middle of the 20th century. And all of a sudden, all of these other rules and these surveillance technologies can begin to be applied to them in a way that they're just not applied to other, other social groups. Just because we were speaking backstage about maybe the case of ballet or something where it's obviously extremely highly competitive. Uh, your ability to get one of the few key jobs is going to be dependent on what is essentially competitive performance against your sort of similar peers. And yet we don't see doping as a massively relevant consideration to the kind of um, application process for, for getting the big job. So do you think there's something you know specific in sports that makes us so keen to want to police yes i mean there's other areas i mean think about uh exams children who have concentration issues we don't and drug can... test exam takers do no, we? But, I mean, a lot of children take ritalin people take amphetamines in exams uh, it's not obvious that that that's regarded 
as beyond the pale? I mean, some parents, I can remember my children weren't, and I thought, this isn't exactly fair, you know. Uh, shouldn't they be getting a bit of a leg up too? But, but there's no sense that this is beyond the pale, this is somehow... Uh, doping, this is terrible. Uh, I think increasingly I you do see some literature on is it Adderall is, is used to to help exam performance and concentration. So I wonder, I mean, could we see it getting to a place where people decide, like with the sports thing, all right, this is, you know, these strychnine children have got to be stopped. But can you, can, can you see a situation in which, you know, there's sort of academic regulating bodies would start applying similar principles? I mean, it seems like that the stakes are equally high, if not maybe even higher, in terms of determining, like, your future success? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the situation with exams may well be that um, there isn't anything potent enough that we think is worth regulating. So if you say, could we imagine a situation where something allowed somebody to stay up for a week and study with intense focus, but was perhaps but was harmful, then we might begin to think about that. Um, but there are similarities between the exam case and the sports case in that you're competing for positional goods within certain kinds of constraints. And so it seems to me that a lot of the arguments are going to be um, uh, transferable, I suppose. Okay. I'm curious. I'd like to ask Vanessa, how, when you suggested that, that this kind of antipathy, it's the bogey of doping in sport, was to do with the Cold War and uh, Eastern Bloc countries. I mean, can you put your finger on, on issues there? Um, I mean, traditionally, that would be one of the historical justifications or explanations for why the rules began to be changed in the late 50s and into the 60s. Um, given that doping, or not doping, but using assistive substances is clearly widespread in sport in the 30s and the 20s and in a way that is explicit and acceptable. The fact that by the 1950s, I can't remember quite when it came out, but the American Medical Association puts out a statement around about the mid-50s saying something about the use of amphetamines in sport and there's some relation there to concerns about emerging drug culture and amphetamines they pick up on particularly specifically to say we think it might have a health risk and therefore this is why we're flagging it. But it sort of sparks a bit more of conversation. The British are quite, they don't think it's really an issue and then even if people are taking it, does it really matter? That, that seems to be where the conversation is in the 50s. And then the end of the 50s, there starts to be the discussion about hormone use by um, communist um, competitors. And all of a sudden the conversation seems to take a very different turn about whether this is, you know, that this is exploitative and that it is harmful. There are fears that, you know, athletes will have sex changes because they're being given testosterone and there's a much more negative dynamic discussion. So it's, it's, partly, it's partly a cultural thing to do with drug culture and anxieties about criminality and all of, you know, the rising hippies and all that sort of thing through the 60s. But I think also there's a very clear Cold War, us and them divide where you know, this is war by other means, and therefore it's really, really important that we set the rules that allow our competitors to be the ones that win. Is there a sense in which, prior to the 60s, there really wasn't an awful lot of effective enhancements out there? So people were taking amphetamines, but making terrible strategic decisions in matches or in races and so on. And so you're kind of saying, well, what's yeah. the problem? Well, I mean, certainly injecting yourself with strychnine is not a fantastic move halfway through um, a marathon. Yeah, there was, but I think, it's, I think it's also a little bit more than that, too, in that there does seem to be a difference, and other people have picked up on this, between sort of the first half of the century and the second half, between the idea of taking something that kind of improves your performance right then, like an amphetamine or some sort of stimulant, or alcohol. I mean, champagne before a race, very popular. That was supposed to really give you vim and vigor for a running race. Like anything fizzy was excellent. So those were ideas that it was right then. It was, you know, having a bit of a slow day, so you took a snort of something, and that really helped you. And the more 
focused and steroidal-based developmental enhancement forms where it's actually part of your training to take these substances and it's a much more longer-term form of enhancement rather than a sort of immediate performance boost. And that does also seem to change, again, round about the 50s and 60s, and I think that's, that's to do with scientific developments in, in how these substances could be used. Can I, can I go back to something that went past earlier about alcohol? Now you've mentioned mm. champagne, because that slightly surprised me because WADA... Uh, World Anti-Doping Agency, uh, kind of toes the social line. I mean, so so cannabis is out, cocaine certainly out, amphetamines out, uh, nicotine's in, caffeine's in, and many athletes uh, have a couple of hits of, of double double shots of espresso before before competing. It really makes a big help. So I would have thought alcohol was in. But you said it had gone out again. I understand that it was taken off the list. It's not on the list. I had a quick look to see if strychnine was still on it, and alcohol is not currently on it as far as I could tell. But it was on. But it was think? on until last year, yes. That's funny that it was on. I'm surprised it's on at all. I mean, given nicotine and caffeine, caffeine weren't. But uh, water doesn't really have a very clear policy on these matters. Uh, is it quite one-size-fits-all? I'm just asking because I don't really know. But do they? Is the thing is, if you're doing any of the sports you can't by, have any of by and things. large by and large i think there's some special exceptions for beta blockers and maybe archery i mean some slightly special cases but but in general no, all sports are not allowed to take cannabis god knows okay. why but i mean that's that's the wider wider policy uh and uh, it's really interesting how you yeah. could see maybe a sort of overlapping uh, interests thing where i mean yeah. why would it be the case that that cannabis would be seen other than for some sort of social normative reasons or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. I think there's probably an ideal of an athlete at play there. So it's not simply that cannabis may be performance-enhancing or, performance or not, but that it doesn't conform to a sort of role model, perhaps, notion of an athlete that, that, that they're kind of Nicotine's operating fine. with. Nicotine's yeah. fine. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't think you can, I don't think you can get a consistent uh, account of exactly why water has the policies they do. So the inclusion of recreational drugs is a really quite a contentious issue. Um, but, you know, let's take, for example, um, cocaine being on the list. That may be a way of some athletes may use that for enhancement purposes to cut weight before fights and so on. So it's, it, that's not a strictly recreational drug in that context. But you look at sort of cannabis. Um, if, you, no, if, if, if you look at the, the WADA list, it goes through all the drugs and it explains why they're, they're you know, um, uh, steroids, building muscles, cocaine. Uh, and it gets to cannabis and it says the reason is it contains cannabinoids. <laughs> that's, that's the explanation. So, uh, no, as Ronnie O'Sullivan says, there's no way it's going to help you. Uh, competing at any Especially in that situation of yeah. being out in a silent situation in front of people. Okay, at this point we might see, do we want any questions? Uh, so we've got one over here. Uh, I'm going to take the questions in batches. Please wait for the microphone to get to you. I'll take three now. So this guy here, uh, you decide between yourselves which one decide. <laughs> okay, in the blue. Uh, and this man in the red here as well, please. Okay. Hi there. Um, so we spoke about things being banned in sort of blocks, but people do get theoretical use exemptions where they're allowed to take a drug to in, not enhance, supposedly, their performance, but in the case has, has been made famous by a number of cyclists and other athletes, they've used it in that case, and it's very difficult, therefore, to draw a line between who is using it for medical reasons and who is cheating. Okay, thank you very much. We'll just wait until we get the other questions and we'll come around to them all. Who has them? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious. So what do you think about the like viability of maybe two different leagues per sport, um, like one that allows doping and one that doesn't? Just your thoughts on that. Perfect. Thank you. And then this gentleman in the red. Hi, I just wondered um, to what extent you think there's a confusion between two questions or a talking past uh, on two questions. One is, what's the justification of particular rules uh, banning uh, certain substances and methods? And the other is, given that there are particular rules banning certain substances and methods, should we uh, go along with them? Um, because it seems to me that there's a very important difference that's often occluded um, in public debate and in the literature between those two things. Um, and this is why, if you like, the answer to why should we not dope is because it's against the rules and it's cheating, full stop. Why, why should there be certain rules banning certain substances is, is another matter altogether. If I go into a, a hopping race and I say, why can't I run with both legs? Isn't that a, an infringement of my autonomy? I'm talking nonsense. Sure. Thank you very much. Okay, so three questions there. Um, theoretical use exemptions. So um, given the possibility of making a case for your use of banned substances, uh, how should we think about those situations? Uh, viability of doping versus non-doping leagues. So uh, if you want to dope, we have the doping version of things, and then we don't dope in the other game. Uh, and then, sort of, is there a conflation between justifi- justification of banning certain things uh, versus the rightness of following those rules? So, does anyone want to start on one of those? Well, I'll start on the TUE case, these therapeutic use exemptions. So, these are um, essentially exceptions made for athletes who, are, who have a, a condition that requires that what would otherwise be a performance enhancing drug would be allowed to be used for therapeutic purposes. Are there common examples? Is there some, you know, some... Well, I guess the most recent and, in, in some ways, um, notorious example is the, the Fancy Bears um, hack. <laughs> so essentially what the Fancy Bears group did was to hack the World Anti-Doping Agency, and they re- released a lot of data around the uh, applications for therapeutic use exemptions. And what sort of came out, I suppose, was that a lot of these um, exemptions had been granted on questionable grounds, um, and I guess more recently, we had the, um, the uh, DCMS committee's report um, on, on, on doping, which, invo- which involved the Bradley Wiggins case. And uh, there was question marks over uh, the, whether Bradley Wiggins should have been granted a therapeutic use exemption for some sort of uh, asthma treatment that seemed to be quite potent. And, pra- and perhaps, and this is the questioner's worry, really, that that may have spilled over into the enhancement realm rather than the therapy realm. And it's very hard to separate those two things, therapy and enhancement, analytically, let alone in practice. And so there's a worry then that the, um, the TUE system is being abused. So athletes are using this, um, uh, this system to, to essentially um, gra- uh, gain permission to enhance. And it's a very sort of law-heavy, is it the sort of thing you'd need a barrister to put in your Papers for, I'm just wondering, is this kind of another way it plays into the sort of finance end of unfairness, maybe? Well, you you certainly need doctors to sign off. um, And then the question is, you know, so you would need a doctor to sign off, and then they would, your application would go to a WADA panel, and they would examine the paperwork and decide 
whether you should be granted a TUE or not. I suppose the question is whether there's enough scrutiny there, or whether perhaps these, uh, the, the doctor who makes the initial diagnosis should be a WADA doctor as well, perhaps. Okay. But one of the worries with the TUE system, but let's say that we decided to dis- dispense with it. It would then mean that athletes who are temporarily ill or, more problematically, athletes who perhaps have chronic conditions would be excluded from sport, essentially. And so the TUE system is a way of trying to accommodate the fact that some athletes really do suffer from chronic illnesses or can, be, can suffer from bad luck on a temporary basis that might just need treatment. Well, the, I mean, the obvious example for that where it would be super problematic would be in something like the Paralympics, where there are people who have chronic medical conditions that, are, that definitely do need substances that are on the banned list. And then, then you're into a question about, well, you know, how are we levelling this playing field? How are we working this out? And this, this is exactly what the, the historical examples show, is that tension between what's an enhancement and what's a natural substance. And again, part of the, the doping and the drug-taking in sport prior to the 1950s is because amphetamine and cocaine were much more widely available. You know, they were in cough medicines for children. This was part of the natural landscape of therapeutics that people was taking, and therefore it was not as shocking. for They were not being held to a different standard than the rest of the population, and therefore it was not surprising that they were also having access to these substances. It's as the changes in our understanding of what acceptable, you know, normal societal drug use it changes in the middle of the 20th century. Again, we begin to see different rules being applied to, to athletic participation and that some of these substances become problematic, whereas previously they'd been something you could buy in the corner shop. There's another dimension to this. I mean, if, if, if the drugs become not easily available, I mean, you're assuming that if they're available, that would be unfair because some people get... It strikes me that the truth is the other way around in many cases. If you think of... I'm an endurance athlete, and uh, I can up my game by going to spend a few weeks up in the mountains of Kenya, uh, where somebody else has got no chance of doing that at all. But if they could just get themselves a bit of EPO, they'd be up with me. It seems to be much fairer to allow the drug use. I mean, that argument slightly reminds me of, of how the the athletes who had the leisure time to train managed to keep their advantage by not allowing others to become professionals and gain the time to train. So uh, uh, it's not clear to me that drug use in general leads to, to unfairness, if, if anything, the opposite. Well, I think what's going to be, what will come out of any of these criteria, whether it be fairness or harm or excellence, is that each will pick out a different set of drugs to ban. So you might say that let's if we take EPO and we look at fairness, we might think, well, you know, lots of athletes don't have the money to train in the Alps and, 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 and gain all the benefits um, from altitude training that are identical to the kind of benefits you get from using EPO. And so from a fairness perspective, that might well be um, permissible. But then it may be ruled out from a worry about excellence, about sporting excellence. So if you read accounts, for example, of Tyler Hamilton's account of Lance Armstrong accelerating up the hill while on EPO in a kind of incredible, unbelievable way. You might think, well, is, is EPO really doing the work here rather than Lance Armstrong? And so, as I say, it's pretty good, Lance Armstrong. Right, right. Yeah, oh, well, it did. Um, but so, so the different criteria will pick out different drugs as problematic. Okay, I want to move us along to the second question. So, has have, it's worth tried the clean versus uh, doping league? Is there bodybuilding of, of. Bodybuilding would be the one that would. Um, so you might talk about doped bodybuilding as opposed to raw bodybuilding, which would be clean, I think. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, the two different... completely unlimited what you can take in the... Well, I, I, I don't know the, the ins and outs of the rules, okay. but I, I know there's at least much more permissive 
if not a blanket permission. And is it something that's ever discussed in more sort of serious terms about other sports? Like, what if we just have separate leagues, uh, one in which we've unfettered access to? Uh, the, I mean, the obvious worry, I mean, I, I, I might say something a bit more about this later on, is that will it be uh, a stable situation? So you have the weightlifters say, who say we're going to take steroids and the ones who don't, and you think now you're going to eliminate all the worry about people cheating and enforcing and so on. But in the clean group, then you might, you might end up with some cheats and, uh, and it just re- replicates the, the existing situation. Uh, like a it's, it's, it's not clear that by itself this solves, solves the problem. I mean, if, if there's still kudos in winning the, winning the clean, clean competition, there'll be people who try and, and, and undermine that. If you're of the view that we should allow drugs to um, allow people to pursue athletic excellence to the fullest extent possible, then maybe this would be an appealing notion. So, yes, you know, taking steroids might involve certain risks, but, you know, this group of people are willing to take those risks, perhaps to see how far they can go, right? Literally, yeah. Literally, yeah. And there's another group of people who don't want to take those risks, and so then they have their league, as it were. So in, in, that, the proposal of a kind of two... Um, uh, a two-league system is probably at its most plausible if you have that view of athletic excellence um, rather, than, yeah, rather than the other justifications. The third question, um, the difference between the justification of banning certain things versus the kind of rightness of following procedures. So this kind of leads into, I feel like... Shall I, shall, I, shall, I, I mean, yeah. shall I talk a bit and then come, come back to that? Because I, I wanted to say something general about systems of rules that try and enforce enforce certain kinds of behaviours. And I, th- I think there's a general point here that if, if, if you want some groups to, to conform to some such set of, set of imposed rules, it works much better if, if the rules coincide with the participants' sense of what's good and proper, what's proper behaviour. I mean, think about, I don't know, our, our, our tax laws. I mean, tax laws do play a role in, in getting people to pay taxes, but they do so all the more if people have a sense that you ought to pay taxes and that they're going to be ashamed if they're caught out not paying taxes. And, and a society like that will work much better than societies which we can think of where uh, not paying your taxes is considered perfectly all right. I mean, the laws are there, but... Uh, uh, People don't worry about them too much. Getting caught out is a bit like getting a parting ticket, and then people will tend to to collude in, in, in avoiding in avoiding the taxman. They'll run two sets of books and so on. So, so if you want a, a system of authority to work, you need to get get buy-in from the from the uh, participants. And I think it works the same same in sports. Uh, the norms that matter there are the ones that that coincide with the athlete's sense of of what's fair play, and it's important that I mean this is to do with sets of rules. I mean uh, it's important that, that the athlete's sense of fair play in general is not always coincident close to what the rules are. I mean think about about rugby. I don't know. The, the, uh, there's all kinds of Breaking the rules, everybody thinks it's all right. Scrum half puts the ball in a bit, bit crooked. Uh, 
uh, balls on the ground and, and, and uh, the other side's about to score a try, you kind of hold it on the ground, you're not supposed to, referee blows it up. But nobody, nobody thinks that that's, that's bad behaviour. So the rules do not establish what's, what's proper behaviour. But it doesn't mean rugby players will just do, do anything. Uh, they don't trip each other. They, they, they certainly don't straight-arm tackle, I mean, because everybody knows that's really nasty and, and dangerous. So, so different sports will have, have different kind of codes of fair play. And so it's a matter partly of history and, and partly of kind of agreement between the players, a kind of contract about how they're going to do things. So... My favourite example is, is cricket and baseball. So in cricket, if you catch the ball on a half volley, you aren't allowed to say, I caught it. That's, that's just terrible behaviour, shameful. I mean, uh, players are really kind of uh, ostracised if they're caught out doing that kind of thing. Whereas in baseball, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. If you, if you as they say, trap the ball, you catch it on a half volley, you jump up and say to the umpire, I caught it. And... Some people think that's, well, you know, it shows that baseball players are horrible. It's not, not true at all. I mean, there's kinds of things that cricketers do that, that they try and deceive the umpire. But one thing you're not supposed to do is, is I mean, it's just a matter of history. And, and the reason, I mean, it's bad behavior in cricket to, to pretend it because, because there you're kind of breaking the agreement that the players have made, made with each other about how they're going to run the game. I mean, they've agreed that for catches you, you don't leave it to the umpire. In baseball, it's different. They've agreed that catches, you do leave it to the umpire. So there, the baseball player who pretends to have caught the ball isn't breaking any kind of deal. So, so different codes have different kinds of sense of what's, what's fair. And I feel the same applies in, in the case of drug regimes. Just kind of imposing some set of rules on the players isn't going to, isn't going to work. It's trying to get people to pay taxes when they don't care about taxes. So I think if we, if we do want drug policies that are going to work, they really should start by talking to, talking to the players and seeing what, what kinds of, of drug policies they will support, what, what they feel is important for, important for their, their sports. I mean, that's why I think the... the it's probably a result of the history of the Cold War. I mean, why WADA and uh, uh, U.S. Uh, anti-doping agency, they have kind of one-size-fits-all rules that apply across the board, as we've talked about quite a lot. I mean, they're, they're, if you look at the U.S. Uh, anti-doping agency's uh, uh, punishments, a good proportion, 10%, are for cannabis. And you, I can't really see that the athletes are kind of going to get behind an agency it's imposing those kind of rules. It's one reason why, why uh, all the big American professional sports do not subscribe to the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. I'm sure, I'm sure the players do not want that kind of, of uh, uh, arbitrary, arbitrary regime. So my thought about how to run drug policies is ask the players what they... I mean, ask the athletes what, what, what kinds of rules they'd, they'd like to have imposed. I mean, they will then... They will then uh, uh, buy in. I mean, that, I mean, that might allow a system where you have one bunch of athletes who, who say we're going we're to use steroids, another one who don't. But that will work if, if this group are kind of committed. We, we want a policy that, that will catch out, catch out the cheats. Uh, so, yes. Uh, 
So I, I think in, in response to the question, there was a question still, uh, mm-hmm. and the question was, once you've got the rules, isn't it absurd not to conform to them? And I, I think if we think of cases, uh, uh, I... I break the rules at rugby. It doesn't mean I'm not playing rugby. The referee says he's going to catch me out. We think it's okay. You try it. You try it on, and you get a penalty. Uh, I think even in what was your example of three-legged race, uh, a hopping race. Well, you're still in the hopping race. It's just uh, you've broken the rules and you're going to be disqualified. But it's not like it's, it's not like you weren't in the race. Maybe 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 the umpire won't notice you. A lot of people win perfectly good competitions. Uh, uh, I'm going to mention Thierry Henry and the, and the handball. Uh, so uh, with my Irish colleagues here, uh, point made. Okay, I'll stop there. Just uh, that question also reminded me of the, um, the famous justification that Lance Armstrong gave for his doping. He said, yes, I broke the rules, but I didn't cheat because cheating involves gaining an unfair advantage. So if everyone was doping, then I wasn't gaining an unfair advantage. Yeah. And so... I suppose there's a question then of if doping is prevalent, or more generally, if cheating is prevalent in a sport, does that alter your obligations of fair play? So might it come to be that, well, actually, I was, if, if everyone else abided by the rules, then I would have to abide by the rules. But seeing as they're not abiding by the rules, then I have a permission that I otherwise wouldn't have had. The worry there might be, well, maybe now you're doing something different. So you know, if everyone abided by the rules, you were doing cycling. But now that everybody's doping, you might be doing cycling star. It's very much like cycling, but people are using means that are not available to competitors in cycling. I mean, sorry, we're just going to say that I mean that the historical examples just reinforce this idea that these are society-created norms and averages that, about what we consider to be acceptable practice and what's not acceptable practice. Some of it, I think, also has to do with trust. And, I mean, you know, you need to be able to trust that your other competitors are, in fact, not doping. And some of the 50s rhetoric is about competitors saying, I saw them in the changing rooms, they don't look like normal men to me, I don't believe that they're not doing what they shouldn't be doing. So there's a, when you, particularly when you have um, international competition and international conflicts, there's an area in which you, you perhaps are not trusting the other competitors to be abiding by the rules, and all of a sudden you need new rules and regulations. I mean, I said that that yeah. doping ban came in in 1908. They had no way of testing for it. They just had to tell people not to do it, and that was felt like that would, you know, that and a bit of observation would be sufficient. But at the same time, as people are doping in, say, marathoning with strictly and all the rest of it, that is strictly against acceptable behaviour in horse racing. So it was completely acknowledged that these, that amphetamines and cocaine and purgatives and all sorts of horrible things they could give to a horse, that that was not okay for the purposes of horse racing, that it was not, there was not this sort of blanket rule that it was fine in all circumstances, that it would help a horse and that was wrong, but it would help a runner and that was okay because those were the cultural norms for those particular practices. And did they test horses? Um, no, well, this is the problem. Is they're not, there's not really an effective test for a lot of these substances until, we get, until they start bothering to do it in the 1950s and 60s. In fact, 66 World Cup is the first test of amphetamines, first test for finding amphetamines in urine So 66 blood. World Cup. So, yeah. <laughs> so you're right. What puts great pressure on, on the idea I aired, uh, aired that, that uh, you'll have a sound basis for an agreed way of doing things if all the athletes... Uh, have a sense of what's expected and trust each other and will catch out the cheats themselves. What puts pressure on that is 
international sport because the, the sense of what's fair will vary from one place to another. And if you remember England versus Argentina in the World Cup 1966, our Francie said there were animals. I mean, it's something that still goes on. I mean, the sense of what's acceptable on the soccer field varies a great deal from, from country to country. And, and so this idea of mutual trust doesn't really get a grip there, and perhaps you do need international authorities at that point. Um, do you think, yes. I mean, it's practic- sort of practicable because you could see how sport to sport there might be completely different reasons for players. So I'm thinking mixed martial arts again, mm-hmm. you would think that uh, steroid usage to aid in injury recovery maybe would be something that everyone could get on board with mm-hmm. up to a certain limit. Maybe you have to cut it out within a certain amount of time before fights, but presumably from sport to sport or activity to activity, it's got to of very wildly what do you think it's just it'll be very difficult to to do is that the main argument against it maybe no i just think different sports have different needs different different senses of what what's acceptable what's not one problem we haven't really talked about and one 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 issue that's highlighted in the Lance armstrong cycling case is that i mean he says he wasn't cheating he was doping he wasn't cheating and i can kind of see that but it's not as straightforward because of all the hypocrisy I mean they lied and lied and lied I mean I think that's what was most shameful about uh, Lance Armstrong's history the most embarrassing thing for him is not that he was doping but that he continually lied and held himself up as something different uh, what do you think is meant by that I'm not cheating there is it something like I'm not doing what we usually talk about when we well he said I'm, I'm a rule breaker but not a cheater because yeah. cheaters gain an unfair advantage Okay. Yeah. So if everyone's doing it, it's not unfair. Like, I mean, like pretending you could catch in, in baseball. I mean, in cricket, that would, be, that would be cheating. In baseball, it's not cheating because everybody expects everybody else to do it. It's, it's, no? except, except only the ones who are inside, inside the group. The rest of the world and uh, the up-and-coming cyclists, they didn't know about it. That, that was partly what was so horrible about it. I mean, it is a curious point. We, we just spoke about trust a moment ago. The rules around doping are different to many rules around uh, many um, practices that are prohibited in sports. So, rules around doping are different to dangerous tackling or slow play, because doping is essentially a, a trust. We have to kind of acknowledge that, much like match fixing, and much like in at least in many countries, age fraud. These kind of three types of rules cannot be policed effectively in. Uh, community of athletes who are not trustworthy with respect to them. Is age fraud just lying about... Lying about your age, exactly. So in many countries, they may not have kind of birth certificates and all that kind of thing to, to prove. Was the Chinese gymnastics team, that was a sort of famous case that was claimed to be... Didn't people believe that... Oh, I don't know that one. The gymnastics team were much younger than they were allowed to be or something, and there was yeah. accusations. Well, it was the first time I'd heard that kind of a, a cheating accusation. Right. So there may be many benefits to pretending you're younger than you are. If, for example, you wish to be picked up by a club, um, be seen by scouts and so on, you can prove it, but it's very expensive to do so um, in the absence of kind of documentation. But in any event, um, match fixing is a similar thing. So we can't... Um, survey athletes enough to know if they're being approached by um, people involved in betting to say, well, throw the second set of your match or make sure that you double fold on the first point of the third set. There's just 
not that degree of surveillance as possible. And doping is the same. So the tests aren't good enough. They miss much of what goes on. Um, and there's sufficient, perhaps one, one could surmise, there's sufficient amount of corruption to ensure that even where tests do come out positive, some of them are covered up, whether it's in the interest of the sport's reputation or national governing bodies and so on. So essentially, while most of life, uh, most of ordinary life revolves around trust, we try to operate sport in a way that circumvents the need for trust. And I think that's a, a misstep. So we have a testing regime that's entirely incentive-based. So more tests, more severe punishments, and that's the way to resolve the doping issue, rather than perhaps trying to cultivate trustworthiness among athletes. Now, perhaps that's, uh, many people will see that as being naive, uh, but I think it's naive to, um, uh, to maintain a faith in an incentive-based system that obviously fails to align the athlete's incentives with competing clean. But that's at least one kind of to take up one point, which the doping issue is really a matter of, um, I think, acknowledging that trust has to be placed in athletes to compete clean because we can't identify every doper. And then taking seriously the idea that actually, instead of trying to sidestep the need for trust, we need to positively try to cultivate trustworthiness. Vanessa, when things were sort of by default more trust-based because we didn't have the ability to sort of discern, do you think there was a sort of difference in the way people regarded accusations of doing things that were out of the ordinary? Or, um, I no, I think it has always been it has always been a, a trust-based currency. I mean, obviously, and the sports organisations have been acutely aware that if they can't actually test for a substance, it's very hard to ban a substance because what are you going to do? I mean, that's explicitly part of the discussions and part of the reason why they fund people into trying to come up with good tests for particularly amphetamines to start with, but then later other drugs too. But I also think it's part of a, a, a broader discussion about what the sport is for. Like, what is the sporting competition actually supposed to be testing in the first place? Is it testing your willpower and dedication, your turning up to training and all of the effort you put in? Is it testing your innate genetic superiority in the particular physique that you've got? Is it testing your willingness to put your life at risk and take other substances and do those sorts of activities? And I think sometimes those goals, that, that what is the excellence we're measuring is sometimes different between different sports and between different cultures and also between different time periods. And the clash between those, I think, is also sometimes where some of the pushback against doping is. Because, I mean, we brought up um, uh, altitude training is, is, is a great example of that. So the IOC did limit altitude training. They put in a, a limitation. You could only spend four weeks at altitude in the six months before. There was some sort of restriction for it before the Mexico Games, the Mexico City Games in 1968. And there was a lot of discussion around, like, how would that work if you were from Kenya or if you lived at altitude? Well, then you'd obviously have an advantage, but they could, that was fine because that was a fair, natural advantage. But an unnatural advantage of paying to go out there wasn't okay. But if you could go in a barometric chamber, well, maybe that was fun. and it was it was that they were found it very very difficult because they realized that they were testing and examining and trying to measure what were non-comparable aspects of, of physical performance and excellence and those sorts of conversations i think are are really part of the problematic and part of the difficulty i think you have with getting buy-in from athletes is that they recognize even if they're not articulating that there are those contradictions in in, in what we're actually measuring in the first place but i, I i'm i'm never convinced by that excellence-based arguments well i mean there might be some Cases, but if you just think of running, sprinting, uh, what Ben Johnson did was phenomenal. I mean, he 
He beat Carl Lewis. So many athletes say that was the greatest performance I've ever, ever seen. And uh, the idea that he, uh, that, that somehow if he trained a little harder, that would have been a display of excellence, but because he did it slightly differently, it wasn't. I don't think that makes any sense. Uh, I mean, I do think you want to get, I mean, the athletes to decide what, what, uh, what culture they want to have and trust them to enforce it, but I, I, I think you're more likely to get them being against steroids because of the harm it does, because of uh, they don't want to take them. I don't think you'll persuade them that steroids don't make you a great runner. They clearly do. Uh. So would you want to place um, that decision in the athlete's hands, just in the athlete's hands? Or would you wish to spread the, the net wider? Why not? Why not? I mean, and, and then you might well end up with... with, with with the two groups of athletes, I mean, in, in, in the same sport. I mean, they, why should they all agree about how they want to do things? But some might say, well, we're going to have these drugs, and others will say, we'll have no drugs. Okay, before we brawl, we might take a few more questions just to uh, shape the nature of the brawl. Okay, so this person here. Uh, thank you. I'm just a little bit worried about opening the, uh, the opportunities up to the athletes at the elite level to decide the rules and there's there's plenty of examples of elite athletes being asked if we could give you a substance that's undetectable and you can win your next race all your races for the next five years but then you will die will you take it and there is a lot of examples a significant number of people say yes so you put the rules in the hands of some of the people people will die there's no doubt about that uh, and, and I, I also think on the level playing field on Armstrong, um, drugs don't affect everybody in the same way. And therefore, an argument that says everybody's on it doesn't always work physiologically. Okay. Thank you. Uh, down here. Yeah. Um, I just wondered if there was any scripture available from anti-doping agencies about how, how they decide how long to ban someone for once they're caught banning. Because uh, it seems rarely is there... Uh, lifetime bans and especially in the sport of boxing people seem to be get caught every week um, and yet uh, they're back within six months even like the, the boxer uh, British boxer today Billy Joe Saunders he announced a big fight, title fight and he was just caught doping less than a year ago I think about seven months ago um, especially when it's, when it's a bit uncertain whether the effects of the drugs that you take still linger after you go cold turkey um so for example like uh justin gatlin when he got caught and he and when after his ban he served his ban um and i have no doubt he may have been clean after his ban but yeah he went straight to the top of his or he was elite in his sport again um you know it does make you wonder maybe yeah okay thank you and then thanks uh yeah i was wondering about you know maybe part of the, the thing you're just about to kind of uh, start discussing about, you know, and, and you talked about earlier about why is uh, doping bad in sport, but we don't seem to care about it so much in talking about like uh, musical performances or ballet. I was wondering, is that related to the kind of intimate connection between sports and health and the fact that kind of professional sports really, it's just a kind of like performative healthiness, you know, it's like they're just watching the healthiest guys. So, and then we think of drugs as being kind of inherently unhealthy so is that one of the reasons why we sort of uh, want to treat it differently in sports? OK, 
Okay, thank you. So we've got about sort of 15 to 20 minutes left to talk about these and other topics. So the questions there were, uh, given the apparent willingness of uh, highly competitive athletes to potentially sacrifice their life for a few good years of victory and competition, uh, should we be hesitant, uh, given the incentives for people in those situations, to, to give them too much control over uh, what they can and can't do to their bodies uh, in an allowed way? Um, then second question, uh, just to, for looking for some clarity on the sort of correspondence between bans and the nature of offences and whether or not there's sort of specific measures in place to make sure that people remain drug-free or we know that things have left the system that will be helping. And then uh, in the third case, the, the correspondence between sport and health and whether what distinguishes um, maybe especially the one-size-fits-all approach that we see in sports to uh, enforcement of policing is related to this idea that uh, sports people are sort of qua-athletes, uh, the great famous health people. Uh, so feel free to jump in wherever. Well, can I jump in with that last one? Because I have a very specific personal, this is my particular argument as laid out in my book, that I believe this is, this is why it's the case that it's different for sports people than it is for other areas. It is partly the health connection, and I think that's been used very powerfully rhetorically to justify cleanness in, in athletics and not in other events. But I also think it's to do with sports medicine as a specialty, because it begins to appear as a medical specialty in the 1950s. And one of the medical specialties have to have a justification for their specialism. And sometimes it's, I use a special tech. Sometimes it's, um, you know, I'm looking at a particular disease group. But sometimes it's also patients. So very old patients, very young patients, pediatrics, geriatrics, that sort of thing. That's the way you say, my patient group is different, and therefore I know something special about them that you don't. And it seems like a massive coincidence to me that that sort of sports medicine appears... I mean, in Britain, it's one of the first to actually have a sports medicine organisation in this way in the early 1950s. And it appears at just that time when people are beginning to say, perhaps everyone else can take these drugs, but sports people can't. Or more importantly, we need to be able to make sure if we want clean athletes, they're not accidentally being given it by their GP and therefore they need a special sports doctor. What a coincidence, take one with your team. And I think there must be something in there about the way that medicine began to write about athletic bodies as being different. And not just for drugs and doping, but just also for basic stuff like there's these stories from the first and second world war about um highly trained athletes being rejected for um recruitment purposes because their resting pulse rate was 40 beats per minute and that was thought that that was a sign of heart disease and it's the sports doctors who step in and go no these are special bodies your rules about cardiology don't apply to them they present differently they're special and different and that that absolutely coincides with the beginning of the fears about doping and i i, I just can't believe that that's a coincidence so i think it's partly the health aspect but it's also partly this sports medicine as a discipline in and of itself emerging at that exact precise moment. Interesting. Do either of you want to weigh in on the kind of health aspect? Or? I'm, I'm kind of curious about, you said the Cold War, but there's also the, the war on drugs. Yeah. The Federal Drug Agency, the, the Western-led uh, kind of crusade, uh, which is kind of pretty incoherent and mindless. And, uh, and I wonder how far... The, the anti-doping movement in sport is part of that. And perhaps if uh, drug policies are going to become slightly more rational, as it seems now, that the, the anti-doping crusade within sport will have a, a, a less, less kind of one-dimensional uh, development. Uh, no, I think that's absolutely the case. And I think particularly, as I said, for amphetamines in the 1950s, they became a bogeyman in a way that they hadn't before. But I think the difference there would... It would have been quite possible for, for countries to have their own 
particular policies and their own particular moral culture towards varieties of different drugs. It was in that international arena when you then had the Cold War and then you then had trust issues that that morality of practice could then be sort of... It's, it's not just that we think drugs are bad, it's also that we think drugs are bad and also we're a superior moral culture to that moral culture that's doing something wrong and that gives it a much stronger position in, in an international scene. And so what about the... Yeah, the the sort of problem for your approach being that it seems like the the way incentives are, especially with sports where you have a very short sort of life at the top of any sport, um, given the incentives I, I, I to be great. I don't think this is a knockdown argument. Sorry, I didn't mean to use that that phrase, but uh, there. Plenty of sports that uh, are not good for your health, and people engage in them willingly. I mean, boxing, uh, rugby uh, uh, is a long list. Uh, and uh, so it doesn't seem to me obvious that, that if, if there's some drug that can make you a greater athlete, and there are plenty of people who want to use it, they shouldn't, shouldn't be able to. As, as we, we've had a few times, I mean, this idea that, that you could divide the... The, the sport into the groups who take the drugs and the groups who don't, I and mean, that might be the way to go. Uh, but, but after all, I mean, sports, many sports are, are very dangerous, and it doesn't stop people doing them. And, and, and I, I think generally we don't, we don't think it don't think ought to. Uh, I mean, if we were to look at a sport-by-sport sport approach, as David proposes around doping, so we don't just have one banned list. We have a banned list for tennis and a different banned list for boxing and so on. That could, take, um, that could take into account the existing risk profile of that sport. So it may well be that boxers are more willing to take risks than marathon runners of a certain kind through doping, and that could be reflected in the kinds of um, substances that would be permitted in that sport and not in others. Um, so I suppose that may be another respect in which a sport-by-sport sport, rather than a kind of harmonized approach is, is preferable. But I think the, the point that you make as well is Elite sport is not a health-promoting activity. I mean, you need to just look at men's tennis at the moment and think of the injuries that Nadal and Djokovic and Andy Murray have had in recent years. That's, a non, you know, that's, not, that's not an impact sport. Think again of rugby and UFC and boxing and so on and so forth. Just as a clarificatory question, at what point as a sport do you sort of become subject to the world sort of athletic doping regulation bodies? I mean, when, you know, can you... Can you be a professional sport? I mean, when because presumably certain sports emerge out of a much more. My understanding is it goes sport by sport. I think there's perhaps some blanket rules for sports that compete in the Olympics, but apart from that, I mean, as as I said, the American professional sports, basketball, American football, baseball, they don't subscribe to to WADA. They they have their own drug regime, not very rigorous. even the ones who do subscribe to water, because we've got a question down here about, about the penalties, uh, the penalties are left to the specific sports federations. So uh, they vary, and it's not obvious they always vary in a particularly rational way. So look at the Lawn Tennis Association gave Dan Evans one year, two years, two uh, years for recreational cocaine. I mean, might have been around 15 months there. Yeah, and... Uh, Whereas you say the boxing authorities will uh, just have six months for steroids. So it it's, looks like it's a matter of the sports culture than, than any kind of rational principles that are deciding the penalties. But, but you know, WADA offers itself as an authority that all sports can subscribe to, but there's no kind of 
uh, regulatory power that, that uh, forces everybody to, to, to join up, and they don't. Uh, just to take up that second question around punishment, it's, this is a really interesting and important question, because up to now we've been looking at should doping be banned, so should we allow it? But now the question is, well, what should we do when someone has doped and it's banned? And um, the, ga- the case you gave of Justin Gatlin is a real cautionary tale, because Justin Gatlin was banned twice for the use of performance-enhancing drugs. The first time was um, somewhat suspect in that it may have been uh, uh, medication that he'd been prescribed, but the second time he was, he was caught kind of red-handed. But he never expressed regret. He was banned, and he served his time, never expressed regret at having cheated, and came back, and he won the world championships, beating Usain Bolt into third. And he was greeted with a, a booze by the crowd. Right? So the, the, this is sort of worst-case scenario for sport, where your world champion is, crosses the finishing line and is booed. Um, so the question really is, how sh- what is the correct response to doping? Is it simply just exclusion from competition for a certain period? Or should there be efforts made to try to perhaps educate or cultivate um, trustworthy attitudes from the dopers so that they can return and be trustworthy? So at least it's my view that the first job in this kind of problem is to ensure that sporting competition remains meaningful. And if that means excluding someone from competition for longer periods, because you also make the point that anabolic steroids are increasingly being found to have a legacy much longer than the kind of typical two- or four-year ban that is handed out. It could be 10 years, much longer than that even. Um, so because they change the athlete's underlying physiology. They don't just exit the system and leave everything unchanged. So I think there's big questions around what, what, how we should respond to doping. So is it enough just to um, exclude them from competition, or do we need to try to cultivate virtue in certain respect, cultivate trustworthy dispositions so that they can return and not do what they did before? Um, but also, even if we are just looking at a, a purely a, 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 um, response around banning them, we need to take account of the, the possible effects of the drugs that they have taken. And that may involve much longer bans than we, we, we hand out at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing I, I would add to that is also that we need to consider the challenge of doing the research in the first places on these substances. I mean, this was part of the difficulty that was experienced certainly in the 50s when they began to discuss what could could not be could and could not be allowed was that they sort of throw out this range of things strychnine cocaine uv light garlic injections all sorts of stuff and the idea was that actually nobody really knew if any of that helped in sports it hadn't been studied in that way and for some of these substances they were banned prior to us actually having systematic studies of, of their not just of their effects but their effects on these elite level performers because there's actually only relatively few people who can perform at this level and if you want to find out what effect these drugs have, those are the people you actually have to test it on. And it can make it extraordinarily difficult for us to even be open and explicit about does this substance even help? To what degree does it help? What are the knock-on side effects in the specific body of an elite athlete of this particular substance? So some of the problems we have with the the bands and how long you've got to be clean and things like that is it actually makes it then impossible to do any work on the long-term health consequences, the actual effects of the drug itself. And that's that's been true for the entire period of the bands from mid-century onwards. I was just thinking about anabolic steroids. If it's a blanket ban on them, I mean, we're talking about athletes getting injured, and uh, 
it's a standard th therapy for recovery, and uh, athletes are being prevented from recovering. I mean, if, if we're worried now there's going to be a long-term effect, uh, do, we, do we preclude that kind of therapeutic use? It seems very vicious, especially for some of the nasty injuries athletes can suffer. Yes, yeah, so that might just throw another spanner in the works with the, the problem of therapeutic use exemptions, I guess. I'm just wondering from the history on the punishment question, are there any sort of really well-known cases of very sort of strange or undue or poorly received cases of punishment? On um, I mean, I'm not thinking of any that are particularly obvious because they're always disputed because there are always people who think it was unfair because, you know, you should be able to do it in the first place and then there are always going to be the other side of going, no, these people should have been banned for life. You, you know, from point zero, you can find people who will take both of those sides and it very much basically depends on how invested they are in the sport. Are they sponsoring the sport? Did they bet on the outcome of that particular race? That's often quite important too. And how invested they are otherwise. Um, I mean, in terms of earlier scan, I mean, because there are, there are a lot of people who are invested in this sort of activity who might have other interests. The, the first actual doping scandal in the UK is 1876, and it's a long-distance walker. But the reason he got into trouble was he was supposed to be... He, they used to do these amazing long-distance walks, so this is doing sort of 140 miles in 48 hours, and it's going round and round the agricultural hall, so it's really boring. But he was supposed to be collecting his urine for a scientific test, and one of the scientists in the crowd saw him chewing cocoa leaves, like taking cocaine. And they were like, that's going to ruin our experiment, how dare you? They wrote this huge letter to the BMJ about him ruining science, and what a terrible thing it was. In fact some slops have been put in that bucket so the cocaine urine never got tested so everything was fine but in terms of like the cheating not cheating it was fine that he was taking it but the idea that he could have ruined their science that was something that really caused a scandal and people writing letters and being dramatic about it so actually there's sometimes there are a lot of other constituencies who are invested in this i mean the science is an obvious one but sponsors and audiences and tv programs and things like that and i think sometimes we perhaps while it's great to think about what the athletes want as a community they are actually wrapped in this much larger community people who will have competing interests i suppose it sort of connects to the idea of what you're looking to the athletes to to be as well again so you can see you know maybe you're the subject of some science experience i guess also you're a role model so i suppose you see some of the dynamic of punishment in general regulations affairs seems to be that people who are looked up to must be seen to be punished for various things and i wonder does that sort of play a role in the way people think about uh, athletes as people that are looked up to and that might be sort of followed in their actions i think that's i think that's why the recreational drugs are included in the list the question is, even if athletes are role models, do they have a duty? If, if they're held to be role models by, pe by people, do they have a duty to act in a way that's consistent with being a role model? And then furthermore, if they have that duty, should that duty be required or kind of legislated for in the code? Or should we just leave it to them to act out themselves rather than having it kind of um, uh, manifested in a, in a kind of formal code of conduct around doping. As a final question to each panelist, I might just ask, it seems like lots of uh, dissatisfactions with the way that things are currently done have been expressed by almost everyone. Is there kind of one, I mean, I think I know what yours will be, is there sort of one piece of advice you think that would, would improve in general uh, the kind of enforcing of sort of regulations in sports, not necessarily just as it relates to doping, but... I'll just repeat my, my thought. I mean, in, in order to get a work, workable system... Uh, ask the athletes what they want and be ready not to have the same rules for each sport. I think we have to drop the harmonised approach where we have a code that essentially applies to every sport. So my general view is that 
really what lies behind the doping issue is, is preserving sporting excellence. Different sports test athletes in different ways. So whereas the javelin test throwing excellence and the high jump test jumping excellence, so different drugs are going to be problematic in different sports, and that should be reflected in the, in the code. But also, just allied to, to David's point, I think that will also, if you do have a tailored approach to the code, that may also have a, a, a motivating um, uh, knock-on effect for athletes. They're more willing to abide by a code that they have had a, um, a stake in, 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 in shaping. I know. I think I'd be more radical and just say make sport less important. <laughs> well, but I mean, it, this, this is fundamentally about human competition and the human urge to win in particular events. And I, I think so long as it has such an important cultural role for us, we're always going to be at risk of people who are, who are willing to make individual decisions that as, as a group and a society we don't necessarily approve of. Oh. <laughs> On that pessimistic note, we'll end. Okay, it uh, just remains to thank our speakers very much. Thank you. <laughs>